This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome, everybody. Leadership in Action. You've heard it. Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, director of the Center for Leadership and Change here. I'm in the studio with both of my friends and colleagues, Anne Greenhall and Jeff Klein, who run the McNulty Leadership Program. So, friends and colleagues, great to see you both. Great to see you. The band is back. Yeah. And I just want to assure our listeners that Mike has more than two friends. <laughs> <laughs> I know some others, yeah. but right. he did say both yeah. of his friends. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, it's still counted only on one hand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I was only thinking about Joe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that was the other one. All right. Well, oh, come on. Yeah. Her beer is a good friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got two. See? Two. Yeah, there it is. I know. He told me he was more a work colleague. Oh, he did? <laughs> uh, I didn't. I wasn't going to bring it up, but yeah. don't mention yeah. other names. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, friends are overrated anyway. Uh, well, I we can see why you'd come from that yeah. perspective, okay. Mike. <laughs> it's principled, yeah, yeah, yeah. if nothing else. Oh, boy. Well, with that, I've got a, a starting question here for my two colleagues, uh, and here it is. How comfortable are you each, beginning with Jeff and Ann, speaking up during a meeting at work, especially mm. if you don't agree with what's being said in the room? So, Jeff, scale of oh, 1 boy. to 10? Uh, depends on the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on whether 10 is high or low. Right? Well, I mean, on, but honestly, it depends. Um, yeah, it depends on the group, right? Great, it depends yeah. on how much I understand the group, how much I think they want to hear from me. Uh, that's a great point. Right? It's, it's Who's a, in it's, charge? It's created or yeah. it's, yeah, or it's dis- discreated. Yeah. That's a word. Yeah. But I, I think the good groups that I'm a part yeah. of um, and the ones that I'm most proud of, I am, yeah, right up there at a, you know, a nine or ten in terms of my comfort level yeah, in speaking yeah. out. Um, and I think there's a level of trust that exists between me and the other members of the group that what I say is going to be well-intentioned and constructive mm. and, you know, generative and those types of things. Yeah, well put. Yeah. Well put. And that, Jeff, is when you become irrepressible. Or no. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's another side of me which comes out on the show sometimes, which isn't going to help the group at all. <laughs> right. And how do this we make it true. unsafe in this room? Yeah, really. <laughs> all right. And how, how oh. uh, secure are you, comfortable oh. are you talking at a meeting where it's related to work? Well, when uh, Jeff said it depends, <laughs> my thought was 50-50. Yeah. In other words... You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And all that Jeff said, I think, holds true. Um, If I think proactively about how I might like to create a safe space, uh, one way is through space, the use of space. Just how, for example, uh, as a teacher, you know, uh, one of the things, one of my pet peeves, Mike, I don't know how you feel about this, but classrooms are typically laid out in such a way that there's a teacher's desk in the front. <laughs> Take it away. And usually the teacher's supposed to be behind yeah. the desk and the students seated, mm-hmm. you know, before the teacher. The first thing I do when I walk into the room is take that desk out That's of the good. way because it creates a barrier that says me, you, yeah. <laughs> and I want Great a point. we rather than me and you. You know, it's a great point from both of you because that sense of uh, being comfortable or feeling safe is created. We, we can uncreate it or we can create it. And we are now, that is my lead-in, to welcoming 
our guest tonight, Amy Edmondson. Amy, it's great to have you on the program. It's great to be here, and I have been enjoying those wonderful comments. Okay, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Amy, and, uh, would you consider yourself a friend of Mike Kissing's? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, great. You, you can text a private message. <laughs> but, uh, Amy, you're, you're on this topic. Well, you are one of the world's leading yes. thinkers and researchers on the topic. Uh, what makes for a safe psychological environment so people can speak up and to say that totally obvious, if you're in a work setting, a lot of people have a lot of ideas, but a good number of those ideas for improving a product or coming up with a more efficient way of mm-hmm. delivering it or being more customer-focused um, never see the light of day because people are not willing to be um, outspoken, and that is a created condition. Amy, you argue so well in your new book, The Fearless Organization, subtitle, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. So, Amy, before we bring you in, I just want to tell listeners, uh, give us a call. Join the dialogue. We're at 844-942-7866. And, Amy, you're a a prolific author. You've been on the faculty for some time at the Harvard Business School, uh, and it's great to have you back on our program. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Amy, let's begin with psychological safety. Mm -hmm. I I like the phrase. It's in the title or subtitle of your book. So help us appreciate psychological safety. I think it's comfort, but it's probably... Hold on. I'm sorry. Um, uh, There's suddenly noise in my vicinity. Okay. (laughs) uh, Yes, so a a psychologically safe space has been so well described already in this conversation. It's a space. It's a place. It's an experience Mm. where I can... Be myself. I can bring my ideas forward. I can bring my concerns forward. And what creates that? It is emergent. It is created by the group, by the situation, oftentimes by the the proximal leader of a group. And it, it's it's created in a number of ways. But it's um, you know, I, I, when when uh, Jeff first said it depends, that's just a very good answer because it does depend. It, it, this isn't something that I, Amy, either feel safe or not. In this setting, I will. In that setting, I won't. Yep. So it's yep. an emergent property <coughs> of a group. Amy, to get us going on that, let's uh, take your own setting or our setting, a university, mm-hmm. as a particular yes. kind of environment. There are all kinds of implicit norms and rules, of course, and help us appreciate uh, one of the bigger drivers of safety or maybe insecurity that that somebody could change if they put their mind to it. I think one of the biggest drivers is that people come to a setting like a university, particularly a you know a very uh, a powerful and a you know hard to get into university with certain mental models or certain beliefs about what it will be like there and you know there's the the freshmen at a place like Penn or Harvard, they're they're thinking, wait a minute, am I the admissions mistake? So the first, you know, most powerful thing they have to overcome is the idea that I'm going to be found out. You know, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm, people are going to realize I'm I'm not really that smart or I, you know, I'm I'm not that capable. So they're holding back, right? They're holding themselves back. In our classrooms, I think day in and day out. There's a risk that students will call hold back. They want to make sure that what they have to say is, you know, spectacular. Mm. 
Mm. which, of course, is an anathema to a learning environment where you need people to take risks and to get it wrong sometimes and right other times. If, if they're never taking any risks, they're not learning. Mm. So, uh, Amy, it's such a pleasure to have this chance to speak with you. Could, um, could you say a little bit more about what psychological mm. safety is not? So earlier, sure. in one of your earlier comments... I think you made it clear that it's not something that is uh, part of our uh, our character, who we are, our personality. It's something that is emergent. So what other misconceptions do we have about psychological safety? Well, here's mm. one. I think a lot of people think, okay, psychological safety, I get that. It's about being nice. Mm-hmm. No, you know, nothing could be further from the truth, because what it's really about is being candid is being direct, you know, is being learning-oriented. And being nice, I'm, 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 all, I'm in favor of respect, I'm in favor of being polite, but nice often means, unfortunately, that I'll say to your face what I think you want to hear, but then in the hallway later I'll say what I really think. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's not actually very nice. Uh, so it's not about being nice. It's not about lowering performance standards. It's not about making this a kind of such a safe space that you don't feel the need to stretch. In fact, it's quite different. It's about creating a space where you're okay stretching, even if that means some of that stretching will be falling flat on your face, because you know this is a space where mistakes can be made, especially in the service of learning. Mm. Uh, One more, and then I'll pass along to Jeff, Uh, is the... Is the absence of psychological safety necessarily silence? No. No. It's a wonderful question, right? So I can feel very psychologically safe. I can feel that my voice is welcome here and expected here and in this particular moment have nothing to, to say. So mm-hmm. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet, but not because I'm afraid or sitting on my hands, but because I don't feel the need to intervene right now, to impose my view right now. Mm-hmm. Could you also be quiet because you realize that this is not the moment? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, timing is important, and you know, there's the, there's the appropriateness of, mm-hmm. of, of what I have to say for this situation. Mm-hmm. That I, you know, I, I, I think we all aspire to be productive and helpful. Right? When I say something... I may not be 100% confident this is a good thing to say right now, but I have, I have I'm pretty sure it's worthwhile, or at least it's worth getting your feedback. So I'm going to just come right out and say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, I, I ask you that question because I can think of many uh, moments in my, um, my home life and my work life in which either with um, husband or coworker. Uh-huh have thought, you know what, this is not the moment to bring up that topic. (laughs) Let me just go, let me just remain a little quiet here and then come back at a later date. (laughs) And so it's it's not so much that I feel unsafe at that moment, but that I just have a wisdom that, you know what, now is not the time. Absolutely. No, I mean, if you think about voice and and speaking up and saying things, there's a number of factors that are going to shape what you say and when you say it, and some of it is strategy, and some of it is 
you know, you're, you, you have the energy to get into this right now, or you sense that the other person has or doesn't have the mm-hmm. energy to get into this right now. But, but psychological safety is just one of many factors, and it's it's the factor that I've been consumed with because it yeah. seems so wasteful to me when people hold back things that really could and should be said, and they want to say them. Mm-hmm. They, they want to, they just don't feel they can. They can. Oh, Jeff, I have to get you in here. <laughs> <clears throat> so, Amy, um, again, I'll, I'll just add my thanks for uh, you joining the show. Uh, it is a, it's a real honor and pleasure to speak with you. And, um, you know, the, this concept of psychological safety, I think it the, the term provided, uh, you know, a frame or an umbrella for me um, to start mm-hmm. to think about things that I think I was sensing in a classroom, whether I was in a, you know, more traditional student role or more traditional educator role. Um, But just the way that we, you know, we we experience the group that we're a part of um, when we're in this learning mode. And I, I really appreciate your comments about you know, every, everyone comes with a mental model, whether it's about what a classroom is going to be like or what a new team is going to be like, et cetera. Um, I'm curious, I guess, about your, your advice for, you know, designated leaders, um, whether it, you know, how, first of all, if you're, if you're leading that classroom or you're leading, you know, that cross-functional team, um, how do you go about diagnosis? How do you understand whether at the group level, you know, psychological safety exists or or is maybe lacking? Oh, it's a great question. And and there's both the informal and the formal ways of doing that. The yeah. informal way is just um, try to be very sensitive to people's nonverbals. You know, if you're mm-hmm. if you're in a group and you, you can often see on someone's face that they're holding back or that they feel uncomfortable, but they're not. You know, and then they're not saying something, and you should be curious as to why. And you can always inquire. In fact, sometimes just a small nudge like, hey, Jeff, um, did you have thoughts on this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Will yeah, yeah. be all that you need to jump in. You just needed that little threshold um, of, of invitation. Um, so, you're, you know, so there's the informal. There's the kind of sensing, hmm, it's a little quiet around here, or I'm just I'm sensing that people may not feel comfortable engaging the way I'd love them to engage. Mm-hmm. And the other, the more formal way, let's say you have a bigger group or you have, you're in charge of a whole um, good-sized department of some kind, you might issue uh, a survey measure, a survey instrument that, among other things, could measure psychological safety. We have, we have pretty good ways of doing that by survey. And then, then you would look at those data and you'd say, huh, this is surprising. Most important of all, I think, are where you see you see differences, you know, in, in mm-hmm. across teams, pockets of psychological safety over here, pockets of non-safety over there. Right, and and thank you. You're mm-hmm. kind of anticipating where I wanted to go mm-hmm. with that question because it's, um, you know, I I absolutely understand that this is a group level phenomenon, and it mm-hmm. it also at the same time does feel like there's going to be variation yes. across the group, and and yes. So what advice do you have for the, you know, those yeah. of us always wrestling with that? <laughs> yes. I mean, there are going to be some people who just put the threshold for voice higher than others, mm. whether, they're, whether they're just shy or lack confidence or um, maybe even are on the, high on the neuroticism scale. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there will be individual differences. 
But here's the thing. Here's what the data essentially always say, which is that the differences between people within a particular work group, provided that work group is, you know, works together. They're not just sitting by each other in mm-hmm. a phone bank, but they're, they're interdependent in some way. The differences in psychological safety on, say, a survey measure are always smaller between individuals within a group than between groups within a company. Hmm. Wow. So in other words, despite, hmm. yes, there's, up, there's, there's variance among people within a group, um, there's still a there there. There's a kind of um, a, a shared sense, a shared interpretation of how safe it is around here. You know what what this group is like, and and I've interviewed you know dozens and dozens of people in different contexts, in factories, in hospitals, and you can one after another you can ask them, you know, what's this team like, and and various things, and and you'll often hear just strikingly similar responses. You know, in one study in a factory, a, um, a young woman said. This is a great team. I don't have to wear a work face. Right? I loved that response. Right. Right? A work face. You immediately know what she's talking about. And then if you talk to her, uh, her teammates, um, they will say similar things. They don't use that word, but they'll say, um, I just really feel like I can be myself here mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, Amy, I'm going to just uh, blurt in here and remind our <laughs> listeners that this is Leadership in Action. Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host. I'm with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And we're talking tonight with Harvard University Business School Professor Amy Edmondson. Amy, great to have you here. On the topic of your organization, The Fearless... uh, Sorry, the topic of your book, (laughs) The Fearless Organization. And the subtitle uh, does include the phrase we're working on, uh, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace. And... Amy, I think um, the the next question that your your commentary has prompted for me um, is there a uh, is there a potential that there could be too much psychological safety within hmm. a group? <laughs> See, I don't think so, but this this may be definitional, right? Because the way I conceptualize psychological safety um, is such that I don't think you ever. <laughs> want to have like just uh, just enough fear right just enough you know um you know i i, I want to hold myself to high standards i i don't want to just i'm not, so boy i'm not being clear at all but what uh, the way you want to, you do want to regulate mm-hmm. what people say right i mean you don't want people just saying every single thought that comes into their head that's mm-hmm. not helpful um but i don't think the best way to improve the quality of conversation is to have the right level of fear. Mm-hmm. The way I think about it instead is there are other factors. You know, we want to have ambition and a clear goal, and you know, um, we want we want to we want to give each other feedback mm-hmm. so that you know if you're if you're constantly uh, just speaking the whole time and no one else gets any airtime, you need and deserve our feedback. Mm-hmm. And you'll get it. But I don't want to regulate you by making you just afraid enough. Mm-hmm. So is the continuum really um, fear and courage as opposed to um, inhibition 
and yes. being yes, exactly. too tightly wrapped. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I do think, you know, some people more than others will will be too uninhibited and some will be too inhibited, and we, we can help uh, those situations through feedback, through coaching. You know, through a lot of times people just are unaware mm-hmm. of how they're coming across, and we can... Uh, you know, we, we we become more aware of how we're coming across by by getting feedback and getting coaching. Uh, but most of us wouldn't choose, like, just a certain level of fear for ourselves. And I want to be clear, too. I'm talking about interpersonal fear. It's fine to be afraid of missing the deadline, you know, or afraid of the... Uh, the the competing firm that's doing great work and and you know there's there's plenty to be afraid of out there, but I don't want us afraid of each other. That's great, Mike. Yeah, Amy, I'm going to take this in a very personal direction if you're okay <laughs> on this because we're all in the you same bet. well we're all in the same business of yes. applying what you argue in your book and that yes. uh, the three of us here and you of course are in the classroom often mm-hmm. and uh, it's almost uh, first premise of teaching is we want to make an intellectually safe place, but also a participation safe place or a psychological safe place. Let's take it from both sides. First of all, from your side, um, offer up a few of the things you do when you teach your classes. Uh, our sections here at the Wharton School run sometimes as few as 15 or 20, sometimes 75 or more. And I think many of your sections are even larger than that. So the importance of psychological safety for students in a classroom can be pretty high, especially if they're evaluated for participating. So all that being said, uh, given the challenges of a large number of fellow students, uh, what they say will be evaluated and go into their final grade, how do you help create an intellectually and psychologically safe place? Well, Mike, it's something I do think about a great deal. And really the... the, um, the challenge here, the aspiration I think I have in the classroom for my students is that they will feel challenged but safe, which almost seems contradictory, but I don't think it is. I want them to know that there's almost nothing they can do or say, you know, no matter, the answer could be completely wrong, if you want to put it that way, and that's okay, because this is a place for learning. You know, this isn't your next job where, in fact, that could be costly, that could really matter. The stakes are low. But, of course, they're not really low because, as you just pointed out, the social stakes can be high, especially in a very large classroom with, say, 90 students um, in it. So I want them to feel challenged. I don't want them to be sloppy. I want them to kind of bring their very best thinking to the classroom. But I don't want them to only speak up when they are confident that what they're about to say is just magnificent. Mm. Right? I want, I want mm-hmm. this to be the place where we take risks. And so some of the things I do to try to make that possible is I ask, you know, we're lucky, I think, with the case method because it's a, it's a method that is designed to push and to promote learning. But I try to ask good questions, meaning questions that give people room to respond and yet are focused on a particular issue at a particular moment in the conversation. And then I model, and genuinely so, the behavior of listening very intently to what they're saying. And as I'm listening, I'm looking interested, and I am interested. Mm. And then if I 
don't fully understand where they're going or if I sense they could actually go deeper or give us an example, I'll ask that next question. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you give us an example? Mm-hmm. Have you seen Great. that in your prior job? Right. <laughs> so by, by modeling this, this genuine interest, I am suggesting that this is a safe place for you to explore and to go further and to even yeah. take more risks than maybe you are so far. Uh, Amy, a quick question. We're only a couple of minutes here from a station break, so to speak. <laughs> On the tactic of helping that ambience develop in your classroom, mm. what's your guidance to Anne and Jeff and myself on the, at one end of the spectrum, making it explicit, this is going to be a safe place, do say mm-hmm. what you think, don't hold back, or alternatively, and you already used the phrase, uh, instead of saying it, you model it. Mm-hmm. And my guess is there's a bit of both, but what, what, what's your advice to us on using one or the other or both? I think it's 95% mm. modeling and then the occasional, let's be explicit, because it appears mm. to be necessary to be explicit. Yep. And one, one moment, <clears throat> one time, or times in which it appears to be necessary are sometimes when someone goes out of bounds. They they say something that is um, we're familiar uh, you know, with that. Could, yeah. you, you, we've all been there, right? That that is um, just inappropriate and or unhelpful, and maybe even overly uh, derogatory of, yep. of of a colleague, a classmate. Yeah, that... and and that needs to be named, right? I mean, that needs yep. to be not right. in a um, you know a um, a cruel way, but just in a thoughtful. Here's the effect that has. Not you did this or you meant, you know, but here's the effect a comment like that can have yeah, you know, that, on the discussion and on the learning process. Yeah, Amy, that proportion strikes me as really right because otherwise I'm afraid I would run the risk of saying something but doing something <laughs> otherwise. And uh, the, the people at a meeting, the participants in the class are going to believe what I do and what I model rather than what I say. Oh, that's true, too. Absolutely. And, of course, you've got a um, – you're human. I'm human. Right? We're, we have to – we're fallible. We have to um, be willing to be fallible as well. Like mm-hmm. sometimes there's a mistake I make periodically. I always try not to, but here, here's the mistake. A student has his or her hand up um, for a very long time, let's say, and the conversation – and the question I'm asking has moved on, and the question I'm asking is a new question, and I accidentally call on that hand, that old hand, right, the hand that's been up for too long. And it's my error, right, because that person has just been set up, you know, to say something that's kind of going to take us back or take us in the wrong direction, and I will apologize for that, right, I, you know, when, when that happens. And if the hand has just been up steadily, you know, the odds of that person commenting on what we're now talking about are pretty low. Yep. Um, so when I do that, I'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. That's my fault, right? I, I, I realized your hand had been up for a long time, and I shouldn't have called on it for this new, you know, new question. Amy, good point there. I'm going to have you hold the point, And when we come back, I'm going to get us to think about the other side of the relationship If you're a student in one of your sections or one of our students uh, in our sections, um, taking this now from the follower side, less the leadership side, I'd like to get your 
guidance on advice to those who want to speak out but they feel uh, intimidated or they feel that they have uh, that they're an imposter, as to use that phrase that you were referencing at the outset. So anyway, we're going to come back and get into that. Amy, stay with us. Want to just take a short break. This is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School. And we're talking with Amy Edmondson, author of The Fearless Organization. Uh, I'm Mike Hussein. Come back. Sirius XM Channel 132. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Hussein, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back, everybody. Leadership in Action. That is us, Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm with Anne Greenhall and Jeff Klein, my friends and colleagues. And then we are in active discussion with Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School and author of The Fearless Organization. And Amy, we're going to get back to a couple of topics that we anticipated before the break, but I do want to briefly read a really interesting email message from one of our listeners. So here it is. It's, um, it's a couple sentences, so bear with me. Uh, Julie says, what about a coworker that is very negative at staff meetings and who always makes sure she tells the room how much how much experience she has compared to others. <laughs> what can I do as a manager? And then she adds, I've talked to her about this, but nothing has changed. Uh, she maybe feels psychologically challenged in that situation. So, Amy, over to you. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So before you said I've talked to her about this, that, of course, was going to be my first recommendation, is that many times people are unaware of the impact they're having. I mean, most people don't set out to have a negative impact on their colleagues, right? So yep. so they need and deserve mm-hmm. feedback. Um, and if we've already had a conversation, and the conversation was, you know, clear and, 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 um, and, and, and grounded in specifics, um, then um, we have to have another conversation. And the topic of the next conversation is, I need your help. Mm. Um, I... I gave the feedback that I had hoped would alter uh, some behaviors that I find counterproductive to our progress. And they don't seem to have made a difference. Um, maybe I'm missing something. Can you, um, you know, can, you, can, can we talk about what you heard in our last uh, feedback session and help me be more effective in helping you um, grow and learn to be the most productive person you can be on this hmm. team. I know that was a little wordy, but the That's good. spirit of it is come clean, right? When you're in yeah. a tough situation like that, ask for the other person's help. And most of the time, most people do, in fact, want to be as good as they can be. We all know occasionally there will be people who absolutely um, turn out to be impervious to feedback and learning and growing, and those are unfortunately the folks whose future um, may not be on your team. Amy, that's great. Let me remind listeners, if you have a question of this kind and want to email us, we are businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Amy, I've got uh, my own question building on the question that came in from Julie here. 
Let's take almost the opposite. You've got a coworker who never says anything in a staff mm. meeting. What then? I would love to give that person feedback, too. I think this is a little bit easier because it's such a compliment, really, to meet with someone and say, we are missing your thoughtful voice. I am convinced you have a lot to add to this team or I wouldn't have put you on it. Um, what can we do to help um, make that easier? You know, a tactic I hear often from people who are on boards of directors for foundations or companies, a boardroom could have somewhere between 10 and sometimes 50 people mm -hmm. in the room, so it can be a little bit psychologically unsafe just because of the, uh, lar the law of large numbers there. In any case, the board chair sensing that a lot of people have things to say but many have not will sometimes literally go around and almost like a roll call <laughs> mary what do you think on this issue mm -hmm. so amy i think you're probably in the same camp on that one as well no question in fact that's i think i mean it's so basic and it's such an important strategy just to make sure especially when we have high stakes decisions uh, to make or issues to resolve we we need to just systematically go around the room, make sure we're hearing from people. It doesn't require a long speech from everyone, but just that little opportunity to <laughs> offer what you've got. Amy, I might jump in and follow up on that because um, I know I've uh, one of the mistakes that I have made is, am I allowed to jump in? Yeah, yeah. That? <laughs> okay. I feel very, I'm, getting, I'm very uh, psychologically safe. I'm yeah. just. He's cackling. And he, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm also just being a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> okay. He's testing the limits of safety. <laughs> As I was saying, one of my mistakes is that I, I do like to be inclusive and have uh, every voice heard as a teacher and also mm -hmm. as a, um, a manager in the, in the workplace. And one of the mistakes that I have made, well-intentioned but still a mistake, is to uh, gently invite people to participate and uh, against their will. They don't really want to participate for whatever reason. And um, so just thoughts about how to navigate that, you know, because I'm with you, Mike. I think, yeah. a, I think a roll call can be, is very democratic. Mm. Everybody's voice gets heard. And on occasion, I have done that and I have misstepped. Mm. So just mm. thoughts uh, in response. And you're, uh, you're talking about a classroom situation. Well, or, or a managerial or, situation, or you know, where there's a power differential. I'm, I am the one in this moment in charge. <laughs> and I want to hear from everyone out there. And I have inadvertently, um, you know, put, misused, put somebody on the spot, misused yeah. my power. Yeah. So I think it's, it's completely fine to apologize. You know, when you're in a situation where, oops, you know, I, I may have I, I've put you on the spot, I apologize. Move on, right? Um, but it's also, I mean, I want to go meta a little bit here and say, I think there's a growing sense that if you're in a meeting you know, if you're, if you're present, physically present, or on the phone present for a meeting, that ought to be one where you have something to contribute. Mm -hmm. right? I think we all are realizing, you know, we have too many meetings, and um, if we're in meetings where there's really no reason for me to be here, I don't have anything to contribute, and if it's just information only, you can get that information some other way. Um, and, and so... I do want to, I mean, I want to be compassionate. I want to be um, not in a position of embarrassing people or putting them on the spot in ways they don't want. Um, but I, 
I also think we have to err on the side of encouraging people to, you know, have something to say. It's like the old uh, quote from Alfred P. Sloan in his in his memoir, My Life with General Motors, where he says, gentlemen, I take it we're in complete agreement on the decision. Well, then I propose we postpone further discussion of this matter till our next meeting. Why? Mm-hmm. Uh, to give ourselves time to develop some disagreement, um, which he then equates with a deeper understanding mm-hmm. of what this issue is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a wonderful statement because it's a leader saying, I actually don't want yes men here. Mm-hmm. Great. I mean, if I wanted that, I actually wouldn't mm-hmm. really need you. You know, I'd, you'd be redundant. So uh, you are here because I think your brain, your experience is vital uh, to this team. That doesn't mean you, know, you need to be, have something to say about every single issue, but you do really have to be willing to step up. Yeah, and you really bring up sort of that uh, social contract that we have know that as as mm. participants in the meeting in the organization that that mm. others have responsibility <clears throat> in a, in addition to the one in charge Okay, uh, Amy, I'm going to once again uh, jump in here and just remind listeners that we are talking with you, Amy Edmondson, author of The Fearless Organization, and you are listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. Jeff, over to you. So, Amy, I think um, Mike and Ann and I have looked at each other a variety of times during this interview. I'm fairly sure we could keep asking you questions for the next four or five <laughs> yes, hours, which true. would primarily be self-serving. Um, <laughs> I just want you to know I'm a little bit jealous that you all get to be there together and I have to be on the phone. Okay. The phone. Well, we'll do it again. Next next time, you we'll here. do this again at <laughs> any point. You're, yes. in, you're invited. <laughs> you come any day. <laughs> um but so I, I guess I wanted to to ask you. I, you know, you've studied this. Um, organizations have studied this over time. And so, what kind of outcomes do you see, both towards performance, towards learning, towards innovation? Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about all these things, you know, within the book, and it's certainly signaled within the subtitle. But you know, give us give us some of the outcomes <clears throat> that the presence of psychological safety, um, you know, has indicated. Sure. So some of the outcomes are, I mean, a whole cluster of outcomes relate to engaging in more learning behaviors, you know, Mm -hmm. more quality improvement work, more error reporting, and things like that. But but probably my favorite study, the study I did with your Ingrid Nemhard, our professor at Wharton, um, years ago, when, and, and Anita Tucker, who's a professor now at, uh, at BU, and we found that in ICUs, intensive care units, with essentially high psychological safety and high across role groups, meaning doctors, nurses, you know, frontline uh, respiratory therapists, mm-hmm. all having, you know, sort of high psychological safety, that over the three-year period of the study that was where all of these units were actively involved in quality improvement work, those with the high psychological safety compared to the others had an 18% improvement in morbidity and mortality. Right, so this, these were lives you know, being saved mm-hmm. by people's willingness to speak up, ask for help, you know, mm-hmm. try new things, and so on. So, you know, so that, that's one of my favorites simply because it's so stark and it's so important. 
Um, but Google, of course, famously, a couple of years ago, did a study designed, led by Julia Rozovsky, designed to investigate the question of why do some teams perform so much better than others? Sure. Everybody we hire is smart. You know, everybody's well-educated. Why are some teams outperforming others? And to make a wonderfully long story short, they found that the underpinning, the bottom line, if you will, was that those teams had high psychological safety. And uh, maybe just as a, a more personal aside, um, was that a study that you were involved in at all, or was no. that something where you got to wake up in the morning and be like, No, yes, yeah, I woke sweet. up in the morning on February 16th, I mean, or whatever, February 28th, 2016, and <laughs> saw that the cover story of the New York Times magazine was, you know, why, you know, what Google found out about why some teams thrive right. and others falter. And I thought, oh, that should be interesting. Like, I'm, I'm interested in teams, obviously. Yeah. So I, I started to, uh, to read it, and I was absolutely astonished. Mm -hmm. Astonished and delighted. You know, about a third of the way through that long article to discover what they had found, that they had found, in fact, psychological safety was this, uh, this powerful factor. So, no, I mean, on the, on the one hand, um, hats off to them for doing this and, and not needing ever uh, to reach out. Mm -hmm. They did find my, some of my papers and measures and things. Um, on the other hand, I certainly would have loved to be a part of it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and for our listeners, if if you want to take a look at that study by Google, it's all available on the web under Project Aristotle. You can appropriately Google that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It will it will take you there. Um, you know, a Amy, I just wanted to ask one question related to that. Some of when when you talk about learning behaviors, one of the distinctions uh, you drew in the book and in your research are kind of know what learning versus know how learning. And and I, I found that distinction really interesting. I wonder if you could just uh, explain that for yes, our listeners. Yes, I agree. So know what learning is the kind of learning of facts. <coughs> I can Google it, right? Mm -hmm. I can find out. I can read uh, a research paper, and I can get smarter. I can get those new uh, – I can get that new knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that's no – that's no what. No how is the kind of thing that I have to kind of try it and do it and more often than not work with other people to try it and do it. So the former has absolutely no interpersonal risk. Right? I can read in the library by myself or at my, at my computer. The other brings interpersonal risk. I, I'm going to have to try something that I've never done before and in front of other people. And so what what we found in that study was that, and this again was a study of intensive care units and quality improvement work, this, we found that the know what learning had absolutely no relationship with psychological safety, which of course makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's no interpersonal risk there. But the know how learning was powerfully predicted by the level of psychological safety in the team. That's very cool. Amy, we've got only a couple final minutes here, and I wanted to bring in very brief reference to the fact that you use your framework here to help us understand what happened at Wells Fargo and mm. at Volkswagen. Um, and mm. at the core of it, if I can summarize my quick reading of your chapter on those two debacles that we already know a lot about, in the ranks, people felt compelled to take what turned out to be unethical or even illegal actions 
for the lack of psychological safety. So just expand a bit so we can understand what happens if you don't have a whole lot of psychological safety, the downside. I know. The, so w- the risks are so huge, as those two stories really um, dramatize. And I call it, in both, both of those stories, I call it a recipe for failure. High, high goals, you know, stretch goals mm-hmm. and closed ears. Imagine what must go through the head of a software engineer at, 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 at Volkswagen or a, you know, a branch personnel salesperson at Wells Fargo when they are finding it more feasible to cheat and dissemble than to tell their boss this really won't work. Right? I mean, I, at one, yeah. one hand, I, I, I feel a lot of empathy for them. So in, let's, we'll start with Wells Fargo. So in the Wells Fargo story, the pressure to cross-sell and the pressure to reach this magical number eight, you know, selling eight different financial services products to each customer, um, and the implied message of we will not take, I can't do it for an answer, you know, made people just feel incredibly afraid, incredibly stressed, and eventually they got creative, and they created fake customers and lied to customers and did all sorts of other um, unethical and illegal behaviors um, because they did not feel it was possible. I mean, imagine what Mm. that feels like, to not feel it's possible to speak up the hierarchy to your boss, your boss's boss, etc., same thing can be said for the Volkswagen story. So both of the stories have this wonderful pattern of it looks for a while like they are superstars. It's, it's the illusion of success rather than actual success. And, of course, none of us ever want that to be the situation with our own organization. You know, we want our successes that look like successes to be genuine, to be to be honest, that you can't peel back the layers and find, oops, it's a house of cards. Amy, that's been terrific, and I think the commentary over the last 50 minutes helps us appreciate the title of your book, The Fearless Organization. (laughs) Thank you for being on the program, and if a listener would like to know more about you or about your research, what would you offer up as a place to find out about that? hbs.edu. Search faculty, Amy Edmondson, or just search Amy Edmondson, and I've got a website there, faculty page, as do my colleagues. And that has my books, that has articles, and and much, much more. It's been an absolute pleasure being with all three of you. Okay, Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. That's great. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 